Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent base. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters. With me, as always, is the man who was the inspiration for the Alanis Morissette song, You Ought to Know, Mr. Ryan (laughs) Seabold. What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? It's going well. You could say I'm having a whale of a time over here. Oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> That's right. Ah, uh, what a modeling movie. So appropriate to bring this type of energy to a movie about this film of all films, right? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we are here to discuss fittingly 2022's The Whale. Ryan, do you have a description for us, sir? I do. This is directed, of course, by the great Darren Aronofsky and shot by Matthew Libatik, uh, his longtime pal. Google has this described as, in a town in Idaho, Charlie, a reclusive and unhealthy English teacher, hides out in his flat and eats his way to death. Spoiler alert. <laughs> he is desperate to reconnect with his teenage daughter for a last chance at redemption. This was made on a shocking budget of $3 million, even though it takes place what? in one room. And brought in a box office of 55 mil. So Darren Aronofsky gets to go on and make another movie, <laughs> whether <laughs> you want it to or not. So, yeah, no. this was uh, A24. I think this was his first A24 release, if I'm not mistaken. This was based mm-hmm. on a story and play by Sam Hunter, which was loosely based on real events in his life. And uh, But he's still alive, so that's cool. He found a way out. But, yeah, uh, there's a lot to talk about in this. Normally, Jason, I would say... What did you think about this movie? But I'm going to throw it back to you by saying, are you okay? How you doing, buddy? <laughs> Everything all right? Well, dude, I'm going to go ahead and let you know that. But first, do want to remind our audience to go ahead, like this vid, subscribe to our channel. And as we go along, please feel free to leave comments about what we have to say or what you think about some of the elements that we're talking about. We would love to hear from you. Now, yeah, Ryan, I mean, this is a this is an emotional experience. Absolutely. One hundred percent. You know, I think that sure was. it's going to be difficult for anybody to say otherwise, simply because of the both the gravitas as well as the sympathy and compassion that Brendan Fraser brings to his role. But also, right. you know, he, he he has the most showy role by far and he's asked to carry the most weight. No pun intended. By the way, I feel like there's been <laughs> oh, so God. many unintentional puns over the course of this movie. I apologize <laughs> in advance to all of you. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Yeah. Uh, this is not a film to bring this energy to. Why? Why is this what we're doing? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. I'm sorry, everybody. Back up I here, apologize everyone, on okay? behalf of my, uh, <laughs> my ghost. But no, I loved this film. And I think that it's the one of the things that I loved about this is as I was doing some of the research behind it, Aronofsky, who, who by the way, is one of those directors who, at least for me, I constantly forget how great he is and how much of a genius is because I don't know what it is about his films. They're not necessarily easy to forget, but they don't tend to like 
be films that a lot of people will continually bring up 10, 15, 20 years down the road, like some of his contemporaries. I don't know why that is, because he's a brilliant filmmaker. You know, mm -hmm. there was a lot of allusions to the wrestler, I think, in this film. And, right. you know, so it's it's really interesting because it's such an understated not performance, but an understated direction. And I would say sort of like an understated film where he went on record as saying that with this film, he really just wanted performance, light and camera to do all of the work. And I think that perfectly summarizes Nailed the it. three big pies on the pie chart of this specific film, you know? Sure. How about you? Yeah, I, this was a divisive movie. I was emotional in this film. I'm not an emotional person. Um, I bury that shit deep down and, uh, Aaron, Aronofsky got a shovel and he's like, let's go to work, son. And, uh, I was like, damn it. Uh, so fuck this movie for making me feel things with my man heart. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, I, this was a divisive movie for a lot of people. I would have thought after the film, when I was doing research for this show that I would get on there because I remember very distinctly, um, in all the press, Brendan Fraser, of course, got the Oscar, um, and rightly so. I think he deserved it. Uh, and then at the, the Venice yeah, International Film Festival, I believe it was, he got a six-minute standing ovation, which was like the longest one in history and blah, blah, blah. So um, uh, he deserved all those things. But I thought I was going to get online and see people gushing about this film. And I saw a lot of the opposite. A lot of people thought this film was a bad movie that was stilted by amazing performances, that the characters were one note, um, and we're going to get into some of this very quickly, but um, I just, I really like the movie, but I do understand some of its critics, I would say. Um, but I really like the movie. <laughs> I don't agree with the critics, but I understand. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, we'll certainly get into that. Yeah, because I definitely didn't feel that way. And so let's go ahead and start here. You know, like I said, uh, in addition to all of those uh, aspects that we just talked about, I think also you have the screenplay that's really doing mm -hmm. a lot of the work. So that would be like right. the fourth element of the pie chart, if you will, that I would say. So those are really the four elements that we're going to focus on. But I think if I think it's pretty widely agreed that the largest slice of the pie by any stretch is going to be the performances. Right. A large sure. part of that with Fraser, but then also with the additional performances. The largest part three... of that was Fraser. Yes. <laughs> and I think that uh, the other three do amazing jobs as well. So, but let's go ahead and start with just uh, Fraser's performance because this actor's performance, who's ever taking on this role of Charlie, is going to be mm -hmm. the single biggest determining factor as to whether the movie works or not. I think that's pretty fair to say. And I would say that it's a tremendous performance. You know, he gives everything yes. he has physically emotionally and he's a, he's also a bigger dude too so it makes sense that he would also uh, be that much more imposing with literally 300 pounds of additional prosthetics that that is right. insane to me that it's a good thing that he's you know well over six feet tall with his build to be able to carry all of that because it's 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 difficult so but i would also imagine that it's the type of physicality that informs a performance right uh, when you're carrying all that weight, that's got to weigh on you. Oh, my God. They're just they're so here all the time. And uh, so as, as an gonna, actor, uh, when I edit this, Jason, I'm going to put a little tally <laughs> at the bottom. And go, ding, ding, ding. ding. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. Uh, you know, I'm sure that's something that he he's able to. Again, it informs the performance because it's like it's there. You, you know, you can't escape it. It's this suffocating. And my understanding is also the prosthetics were such that they were really hot. 
in addition to being really heavy, yeah. that he had to have these like cooling systems that they would build underneath and get like ice and all of this stuff to keep him cool. So all of that, you know, you almost wonder if like the, the you know, the, the scenes where he's sweating on film, like they didn't even need to bring in makeup for that. It's just him, right. unfortunately sweating through all that makeup. Right. So yeah. I think that he is definitely the 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 biggest reasons for the film's success. And again, it's the type of performance where if it fails, the film fails, I would argue. Sure. But he couldn't do it by himself. And Hung Chow uh, is a great anchor um, to to his character as his lover's sister. Uh, His lover passes away. There's going to be some spoilers in this, everybody. So if you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's a great film. Uh, I think Jason and I are going to give it good reviews, even though some people were critical about it. But uh, yeah, Hung Chow was great. I loved Hung Chow in The Menu. Um, I talked about that in a previous audio episode of our show, uh, how I thought she was the best part of that uh, film as well. Uh, I thought she was great in this. Uh, Sadie Sink was great. I thought that they didn't give her a lot uh, to really play with. Um, You know, she's a rebellious teen. We kind of get that. Um, but she took that and ran with it and she brought a lot of emotion, especially in those final moments. Um, you know, it really built to an apex in that final climax of the film where it just grabs your sponge of a soul and just rings it out. So, um, yeah, I thought Sadie was great. Uh, what what's the, the boy's name? The, the, the evangelist, uh, Ty Uh, Ty Simpkins. Yeah. Yeah. Thomas. Um, I only know him from uh, the Iron Man films, <laughs> unfortunately, and stuff like that. So uh, I've only seen him around a little bit. Uh, you know there. what? Actually, just to interject real quick, the reason for that is that he actually took a break. He was a child oh. actor and he was kind of over it. And they cool. went through like a 100 different people trying to find someone for Thomas, couldn't settle on it. And the casting director was like, hey, I remember this guy who kind of took a break, but he'd kind of be willing to come out. And they like nice. sent one tape and they were like, get him over here. Like it was like day before shooting or something. Welcome back. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think he did a good job. I don't know how much I really cared about his character throughout. Um, yeah, maybe only because the gravity was so great around the relationship between Hong Chao's characters, Sadie Sink and Brendan Fraser. And it just kind of like sucked the air out of the room. And then here he comes talking about, you know, and I think maybe that's the point. I think that, that that's how that character is supposed to feel. It, you know, it's this awkward kind of thing. But um, yeah, I I just, this movie landed for me on all notes. I thought it was great. The music, the score, the, the cinematography, um, the claustrophobia. Let's start with the fact that this movie opened. I had no idea that it was shot in 4.3. Um, oh yeah, but, same. That was surprising. Yeah. But it yeah, works. I mean, very much in the same way as The Lighthouse, uh, we talked about this as well by Eggers. Uh, they decided to shoot this to make it more claustrophobic, to make him feel trapped and confined, and just to make him feel straight up larger within the context of the space that they're showing you. So uh, more imposing and stuff like that. He really filled it up. So um, I, I thought they did a tremendous job of dealing with trauma and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, I, all the way till the very end, uh, I was yeah. along for this ride. Usually I will find myself taking breaks because we take notes uh, for these shows and we do some research and stuff. So I'll get on my phone and, and look, how do they do this or blah, blah, blah. And I'll miss some things here along. The- I was glued to the screen this entire time yeah. and it's all due to the performances. So definitely. Well, and to your point, so I think that like looking at Sadie Sink's performance, for example, it's an example of 
how this film is sort of like sneaky good in many different ways. And I would say that like her performance is actually one of those aspects of the film. And for everybody that's watching us here on YouTube, go ahead and check out some of the behind the scenes, especially there is a breakdown of Darren Aronofsky with Sadie Sink. And they are breaking down the scene where she's just given the crushed up Ambien to Charlie and makes Thomas smoke the bowl and is taking his picture and doing all of that. Mm -hmm. And in watching that, it's about 12 minutes, right? And in watching that, you realize that so much of like what they're doing throughout is is really much more cerebral and premeditated. And there's actually a lot more going on than you at first realize. And so just the way that the camera interacts with the actors on that scene and in that scene specifically, you know, it talks about how, you know, she's almost invoking this sort of like a zebra pouncing on her prey sort of thing. And the way that, you know, she'll interrogate him and then, you know, walks over and then sort of grabs his walker and like sets it in front of him and it's sort Mm -hmm. of like caging him into the table. Right. And then as he starts to tell his story, she sort of like moves in closer. And there's all these really subtle things that are going on with her performance that you don't really notice until it's pointed out which is in addition to the fact that she brings an element of complexity and not necessarily I, w- I wouldn't say she's a likable character I don't think she brings a likableness to it though at the those though she is good about sort of peeling off some of those hard layers as the movie goes on right. but but yeah but I think that again to sort of watch what she's doing and 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 again in her opinion, it's sort of that that concept that nobody is the villain in their own story, right? And I think that good actors and actresses, they bring that to their character, you know? So she's able to find the humanity in this character who's been hurt by this person and like a wild animal is acting out against everyone else, but it's because sure. their paw is infected, right? And in a different version of their experience where that doesn't happen to their paw that are a much different wolf right like just to continue with the metaphor and so i think that you get that sense like she is conniving like even her mom comes out and says like she is evil even if charlie says otherwise which i think is sort of charlie's over positivity or naivete if you will or it's just something he has to believe because he's on death's doorstep which we'll get to some of the character motivations towards the end of this discussion i want to discuss those things with you in particular but yeah i think it's it's the 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 film is very much like sadie sink's performance where the direction is at first it kind of just feels like oh yeah they just sort of got there did you know shot reverse shot And when you actually look at all of the details and the camera movements and the edits, you know, it it reminds me very much of two sayings. You know, the first is when it comes to editing, where they're like a a lot of the best editing is invisible. You don't notice it. Right. It just keeps you invested in the film. But for me personally, it reminds me and I know, Ryan, you know, as a friend and a a fellow Futurama fan, you're going to be able to appreciate (laughs) this quote or at least know it. And that is the episode where Bender becomes the god uh, in space and he encounters God as the planet. And halfway through the episode, as well as at the end, uh, one of the sayings that God says is when you do something right, people won't know you've done anything at all. And that's very much how I feel about the direction of this film. Nothing about this film is Aronofsky jumping up and waving his hands and being like, look at me, look at how cool I am. He did that with his second film 20 years ago when he was much youthful, much more youthful and arguably less mature in Requiem for a Dream, which is one of the all time great art films. I adore that film. It's special to me. It's the one everyone remembers because it's so grandiose. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But he's like, you know, I'm going to pull out the De Palma splits 
screen and we're going to do, uh, you know, motion capture or not motion capture, but, uh, uh, stop motion or, you know, uh, the, what is it, Ryan, where you expose something for like 30 minutes and then you condense it down into like 30 minute, 30 seconds. That one shot oh, like, where she's cleaning. Like time-lapse or, or yeah, time-lapse like hyper right? yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, yeah right. exactly. You know, they do that. They've got these at the time, very novel camera setups where, you know, it's on a rotating arc and like the camera's following people as no, they're he was like having running fun. around. He was playing with toys. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it very much reminds me of a lot of uh, Alejandro Gonzalez in Yuritu's arc, right? Where when they're young, okay. it's like, dude, I want to do everything, right? Like with Amortis Pedos that we looked at on the podcast, you know? Right. He was not just content to tell one story. He had to tell three stories. And then within that, he had to capture them with as much footage. You know, he, he famously said he could have made a million different cuts with all the footage he cut, right? <laughs> and so I feel like well, it's Well, he the said, same you know, you never know if you're going to get another thing. shot. So you want to leave it all yeah. out there, you know? And, and this might be your only movie you ever get to make, especially being from Mexico. But, um, yeah. Yeah. And so maybe to that point, you know, maybe Aronofsky has had a very storied career. He's gotten that out of him. You know, he's he did Mother. He did Requiem. He did these things. So he's like, yeah, you can turn around and do something uh, like The Wrestler 10 years ago or like this now where the film just kind of speaks for itself. And he doesn't need to to wave his arms and say, look at me. You know, he's more than happy to set his people up for success because now he's a bit more mature and he knows that's the mark of a good leader, a good director, et cetera. Right. Getting the Mm -hmm. best out of your people, letting them shine, you know, like a good coach. And And I think that's where he's at in his career. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned at the top of the show that this movie was uh, written and based on a stage play. And it feels like one because it all takes place in one location. You can see where it would lend itself very well to, um, you know, almost a one man, you know, uh, performance or something like that on, on stage. Um, it went around to very small theaters. Aronofsky said that he saw it in like a hundred man theater or something like that, a very small intimate show. Um, but he really liked the concept of it. And, um, it all takes place. This movie entirely takes place in Charlie's apartment. Um, did you, did that work for you or did you ever feel claustrophobic or did that like bother you at any time or, um, was there enough changes that were going on? Like, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah. So here's the thing. Famously, I really enjoy kind of one location films when done well. It's a big really? risk. It, it's a big sure. risk and it doesn't always work. Right. But when it works, it works very well. Even something like Reservoir Dogs, most of that takes place in the you know warehouse the entire time. Sometimes we go outside to the trunk and then we get right back in, you know. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of films. Uh, Night of the Living Dead is another perfect example. Once we're in that house, like we're pretty much in that house for the entire movie, you know, Sure. and those films work. There are other films where maybe it doesn't. And I'm not going to be able to call those because I don't retain them. I have long since let them uh, <laughs> washed out of my memory. Right. So. Sure. Uh, but I, I know them when I see them. But yeah, I think I think it works again. So. Part of it is the Brendan Fraser performance, because if you have any that's why I said this movie lives or dies by the performance, because it is all him the entire time in this room with no additional locations and very few additional actors to switch things up. People just come visit him and come in and out of his life. But he's there the whole time. (laughs) And that brings up a perfect example of why I think the film works, as well as illustrating one of those points from earlier about the subtlety of Aronofsky's direction, which is that a large part of the way that he wanted to shoot this film is he used this metaphor of Charlie being the son. Right. 
Uh, not just uh, for, in terms of like having a lot of warmth that exudes out of him for everyone else, even if he can't shine that warmth on himself, but also from the standpoint of these three other characters, everything is constantly revolving around him. Sure. And so you'll see certain instances, instances like even in that um, scene that I was talking about earlier uh, where he's passed out from the ambient, like you'll see that there's a shot where it's a wide shot and it kind of has him in the foreground and it sort of like dollies across and it keeps him in there. And you see the other two people, you know, one of them stationary, but then she's sort of like almost orbiting around him, you know, Correct. to get to her like next sort of stage. And so there's this theme, even down to the standpoint of shooting her with cool blue light versus him with warm orange light to mm -hmm. differentiate the two. But then giving her more orange highlights as the film goes on to express that she is almost absorbing some of that warmth from his sunlight. Right. Yeah. And, and then the film resolves her. with her almost, um, haloed by light. Like she yeah. is standing in the doorway, uh, as she's leaving and, and, uh, he's about to pass away and all of that. And she's reading this monologue or this essay. Um, and yeah, the, the light is, you know, creating lens flares and stuff. It's, it's behind her haloing her. So that's a good point. I know that to also to add to what you're saying, uh, one of the challenges that they talked about having, uh, Libetique was saying was, um, here you have this, you know, three, 400 pound man, um, that's, that can't move. He's on the couch. Yeah. So you don't want it to just be proscenium view of, Brendan Fraser the whole time uh, you it's going to be too confining to shoot this in four three and not have any camera movement no character movement he can't get up and walk around the room and monologue or anything so they pulled the couch out to the center of the room which allowed Sadie Sink to do that which you're saying orbit around and it also acted as a character motivation she said to almost taunt him because he could not he was so large that he couldn't look over his shoulder um, he was, you know, restricted in movement. He, his airway was clogged and all of the things. So yeah. when she was like walking around him, it was almost taunting him. And she said that she used that almost as a performance cue to act as like a, uh, a devil character of sorts, like, uh, the temptation of Christ or something like that, where, um, you know, she was taunting him as she was walking around him and, and he couldn't do anything, but just, succumb to her words and emotion and you know that and that would help evoke things out of brendan fraser too which i thought was a great volley and, and a really interesting decision to just by moving that couch out to the center of the room something as simple as that yeah. now it allowed your characters to walk around them 360 degrees allowed for camera movement and crane shots and steady cam movement and stuff like that different lighting setups and all the things so uh you're absolutely right that was interesting yeah and one of the important things to remember too as well when it comes to the ellie character played by Sadie Sink, is that, like, she's been very hurt by this man who was her father, is her father, and walked out on her at eight years old. And here she is eight to ten years later, and that has an impact on her, you know? This entire film, you've touched on it earlier, is really about trauma and the response that we as humans have to that trauma. And it looks sure. like a number of different ways, you know? And I think that so much of why this works is because, you know, everybody's grief is given a level of respect by the actor that is playing them. I think the only person that really maybe doesn't have that level of grief is the Thomas character, which is maybe what you were, were responding to earlier with not really engaging in his plight so much you know it just sure the, the, it never really felt like it was all of you know it, we didn't feel that rejection early on 
it, he ended up lying about it and that was kind of weird and then it resolved really easily where they're just like oh yeah no worries come back home son um and as far as a character reaction that perhaps isn't satisfying but what i will say is it very much is on brand with the film's theme the, the overall theme of this film you know this is not something that we necessarily always discuss about films on this program we do some we, you know part of it is just time right we we rattle on forever as it is and we have to leave certain <laughs> things on the Who table us? right no you know <laughs> but i think that when you really break this film down uh, you know the theme it, it's it's sort of two parts of theme that work in conjunction with one another one of those is again our response to trauma and how much that affects who we are as people and individuals, especially when it comes to the negative aspects and the pain associated okay. with that. But it also is the scene reflected by the scene where he has the freak out, breakdown, whatever you want to call it, right? Where he contacts all of his students and he's like, I don't care what you fucking write. Just make sure it's fucking honest, right? Like with all caps. Mm -hmm. And what's, it's what ends up leading to his dismissal from the position ultimately. But sure. in that moment, what he's like, what, what he's saying and what the film is saying through that is that if everybody had been honest, we would not be here right now with regards to Charlie, with regards to Ellie, with regards to the mom character played by Samantha Morton. Actually, I didn't, I didn't catch that until She's I great. saw it on the uh, credits afterward, small yeah. but memorable scene. Right. She's and great. It, one of one of the tragic things about this movie is the fact that and the story rather in these characters, let's say, is that you get the sense that like things could have been so different for all of these people. Like all of these people were good people that could have made this work. And Charlie made a huge, huge mistake that he would probably never outlive. And quite frankly, if he was a strong enough person and could find that strength, which, you know, it's also it's also clear that he's in the throes of depression. And so subtly it's talking about how depression can prevent, uh, you know, you from finding that strength, you know, or, and all of that, that he would have sure. needed to maybe live a different lifestyle that he just unfortunately couldn't because of the ramifications of the trauma that he experienced in the subsequent grief. Right. But the most tragic thing, like I said, of all is that like the scene with the ex-wife played by Samantha Morton mm -hmm. by the end of it, we see that they still very much care for each other. This is sure. the first time they've seen each other in like 10 years or something like that. And there's very little resentment from both sides, you know, very, very much less than we see traditionally expressed in film. You know, she even sort of tenderly lays her heart on her, ch his chest, Charlie's under the guise of checking her his heart. On, but we obviously chest, yeah. notice that she just f is feeling this comfort and there's obviously still this care there. Charlie very obviously cares for his daughter to a fault, right? You get the to sense that if anything, he would be enabling to a degree if he was in her life more, but she, sure. and maybe she'd still fuck around, but she certainly wouldn't be as cruel and vindictive as she seems to be towards everybody, right? And once again, because nobody could be honest, you know, because... Charlie couldn't be honest with himself about needing help as a result of this depression that he dropped into as the result of his his grief from his 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 this person that he loved dying, as well as being honest with himself about the ramifications of walking out on his family and doing what he needed to do to make amends to them and make things correct. Right. Mm -hmm. If. You know, um, the, the if the ex-wife character had been honest about the fact that she thought 
her daughter was a horrible, she literally says like, she's evil at one point. I never let you see her because I didn't want you to know how evil she was. But Charlie very clearly would never think that about it. And so perhaps there's a scenario where she's honest with him, says this, and he's like, you know what? That's not true. Let me play more of a part in her life. I kind of felt like you, you guys had things and everything was good. I didn't realize it was this. And we can just keep breaking down these layers. And then, and then that's why the uh, Ty Summers Thomas character exists is because that also reinforces that literally very easily. All he has to do is be honest with his parents and be like, hey, I did this. Can I come home? And they're like, absolutely, son. Get your ass back here. We love you, you little scamp. <laughs> right. All it took was honesty, even if it came from someone else. In this case, the Sadie Sink character who... I believe was trying to be vindictive, but obviously Charlie can't believe that because of, of everything that we discussed here. So uh, once again, just th this notion of like so much, so much of the negative aspects of our life and these spirals that we find ourselves in emotionally and otherwise, you know, has to do with the fact that we can't be honest with ourselves about where we are and what is necessary, you know, uh, sure. for, you know, for someone like me, it would be like getting help, right? Like I like to be super reliant, but there are times where I'll need help and I have to be okay asking for it. And if I can't, that's a detriment to myself and other people. And if I can be honest about that, then my life can improve, you know? Sure. So I think there's a lot of that in this film that I appreciated from a thematic standpoint. I have no flaws. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> give me those two pizzas um <laughs> also can we, let's let's mention on that note that this is at times a very difficult watch you know it if is. you're somebody that does struggle with an eating disorder and overeating or you have you know I, I imagine it's gonna hit very close to home right the same way that if you're someone who deals with um you know a sick family member a movie about cancer is going to be harder for you to watch you know i do think that that might be the case because even even for me watching you know when you're when you're watching him literally just shove entire pieces of fried chicken into his mouth or the scene where he's he's he 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 literally chokes on a meatball sandwich is saved by his friend and then very helplessly, she gives him back the sandwich and very helplessly he looks at it and you know he's going to go right back to eating it. And that's just fucking tragic, man. It breaks your heart to watch that. It breaks your heart for him. It breaks your heart for her, especially knowing that his lover was her brother and she had to watch him go through the opposite where he starved himself to death because of the pressures of his religion and his father. And again, it just it, it breaks your heart for everyone involved. So real quick too, not only are you having to watch those hard moments, but you're having to listen to them. I don't know if you heard the sound yeah. design, but the Foley work uh, and ADR was like cranked to 11. Um, yeah. You could hear the grease in that chicken when he was eating it and just the the mouth tones of the, the pizza when he's shoveling it in. Um, it really made you uncomfortable uh you know he, yeah. hearing people eat with their mouth open and stuff like that may i'm real sensitive to that anyways but um uh, you know as he's gobbling all this up the the sound design was really really good it was very well done uh it made yeah. you really experience that on a on a whole fourth dimension um i will also add the music was very haunting uh it was done by a guy named rob simonson uh, he's done some stuff here and there. Um, he did 500 Days of Summer. He did Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, which we've covered on this show uh, mm -hmm. a, a few seasons ago, and he even did Ghostbusters Afterlife. But um, this was his first pairing with Aronofsky. Uh, he really wanted to knock it out of the park. He came up with uh, using these things called overtone flutes. Okay. 
and I guess they they sound somewhere between a flute and a didgeridoo, but they're they almost sound hmm. like um, what what he felt like whale sounds would be underwater, um, just okay. really droning, uh, you know, muffled tones. Like I said, almost like a didgeridoo. And he found the best person in the world that plays these things, custom builds them, and he had uh, this guy build a twenty one foot long one, uh, custom oh, wow. made for this film to give these That's really crazy. long low tones. And I guess by the end yeah. of the film, when he's eating those two pizzas and, and that scene you just described, uh, there's almost a chugga chugga sound with these tones that build and ramp up and give um, uh, like an impending doom of like what's about to come. Yeah. And so the, the sound design and the score, um, I almost I, I almost kind of figured that Trent Reznor would have scored this or um, <laughs> boy from Radiohead, uh, Johnny Greenwood. Something yeah. like that because of the ethereal nature of some of the sound design and score uh, kind of match sure. with what we've heard uh, from from those guys in other films like PTA's movies and stuff like that. So uh, but I was delighted to find that this was uh, Rob Simonson and, and he crushed it. I thought that the um, that the swelling score, because there's a lot of emotional strings as well. Uh, in yes. Those, mm -hmm. In those emotional moments when they're crying and stuff like that, like at the very end. So. It's like he can give danger uh, and build anxiety and tension very well, but also make you cry uh, at, you know, yeah. in those moments as well and really uh, wrench your gut. So, uh, yeah. yeah, this was crazy, well, it, man. This was very yeah. experiential. Now, real quick, before we go, I, I, I do want to ask you, because the critics of this film, and I want to get your opinion on this, because you're sure. more story-based and narrative-based uh, than I am. For those that don't know, uh, you know, Jason's written several novels and edits, edited several novels. So uh, where I'm more like behind the scenes on set guy, uh, he's very much more in tune with story and narrative structure and stuff like that than I can be. I'm more of a cretin when it comes to that stuff. So a lot of the <laughs> critics are saying that you strip away Frazier and Sink and Chow, all these great performances and you give it to lesser actors or what have you. Um, the, the script itself and the characters themselves are all very ham-fisted in one note. Um, that the film is consistently asking you to feel for this character of Charlie, That, but it's also showing you, it's, it's confirming society's view of him, that he is disgusting. They're showing you uh, him as a sickly person, um, with a tragic, uh, health problem and, and they're, but they're, they're making it gross. They're not showing you that with empathy and it's only through Brendan Fraser's performance that you feel that Sadie Sink is just a teenage brat that doesn't like anything. And then at the end she has this character turnaround where it's like, I miss you dad, but because it's Sadie Sink and she brings this weight to it, um, then you know, that adds all this extra dimension to the character, but the script itself and the film itself um, doesn't deserve the the rapport and attention it's getting. It's simply all to to the performances. Um, I disagree. I was curious your take on it. Yeah, I mean that's a fair, very cynical review of this film, right? Like if I passionately disliked this film for any number of reasons, I could certainly color it in that light. So I I get that, right? Like we we've talked about this before, where. If you like a film, you're going to excuse away certain things. And if you dislike the film, then you're going to use that as evidence for why it is not good. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's definitely what's going on with those instances. I think that when it comes, so oftentimes there is this, what I would call a misinterpretation about what a screenplay is or what a screenplay should be rather. 
And so often it seems as though people are of the idea that a screenplay should be a short novel, should be an expeditious novel. You're telling a 400 page story in a buck 20, you know, or less sure. 90. So first of all, I very much disagree with that, right? Uh, with, with a book, it's just, it's the written word, it's you and the audience and it's nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. There is no Brendan Fraser. Yeah, right. (laughs) Correct, right? But furthermore, let me ask you this. If I told you that I was going to make a movie and it had one of the most stellar screenplays that you've ever had, uh, and I am going to shoot the entire uh, film in seven-minute wide takes, and I am going to get mediocre actors to deliver, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to make sure that it's very well shot, uh, you know, I did, I'm not really, because the screenplay is so strong, we don't really need to focus on score or sound design or any of that. Right. Sure. Like it, does that make a good movie? No, because the screenplay is the sum of all, or because a good movie rather is the sum of all of these parts. That together. was my take. You right. know what I mean? So and, like, oh, so Brendan Fraser's performance carries it. So fucking what? Yeah. He crushes it and he makes a that's great what you're movie. Doing. Like, that's awesome. Like, why, why is it, why are you saying that? Like, it's a bad thing. Like, yeah, maybe he did take a, uh, a lie. It's Sam Hunter's first screenplay and it's his first sure. like big, huge, uh, breakout in Hollywood. So one might forgive him if the screenplay and the characters weren't fully fleshed out, but then Aronofsky comes in with, and then, you know, rips shit with all his badass actors and Matthew Libatique and makes a smoking movie. Like, that was my take on it. I was hoping you would say that. I wasn't sure, like, how you, yeah. I definitely see their critique. I do. I see what you're saying. But you can't do that. You can't say, you know, this pizza would be good. You know, it's only good because of the sauce. It's like, yeah, yeah. but is it fucking good-ass pizza? Like, some of the best pizza I've had is, like, you know, it's the simplest. Uh, and it's just, you know, the basil yeah. and the margarita pizza, whatever, you know. But the because the ingredients are so fucking fresh... You know what I mean? Like, okay, so maybe it's basic as fuck and you strip it away, but you can't deconstruct a movie like that. And, you know, I think you can when you when you're saying like the only the cinematography is good. But when you're talking about performances from actors and the direction from the director, that's the fucking movie, bro. I don't know what to tell you. Like, that's the you can't unbake the cake like it's all in there. Yeah, and 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 so there's there's two other things that I would like, I would like to say on this note. I think first of all, one of the things that I very uh, said very early on in this discussion was that this movie is sneaky good in a lot of itself because it goes so far out of its way to not call attention to what it's doing. Sure, I think that that's what a lot of people are referring to because I think that anytime you have more subtle aspects of filmmaking. It's difficult for people to rely on. Like I said, they're, you know, they're not sitting there with a note. You know, they don't have the ability or they're not sitting there pausing it and writing something out. And then that spurs an idea about something and makes you think about something else. And you run with sure. that and you make a note so that you can bring it up later in a podcast. You know, right. uh, it's like it, like I said, you know, there's a I think that there's a difference between a critical reviews where we do sit here and write all these things down and analyze them. And we're going to either make an article or a video or a what have you afterwards and so um you know we we can pretty much very immediately tell how much meat is on that bone and just by the nature of this discussion i think that you can tell that there's a lot and the reason that there's a lot is my second point which is that i forget if i brought this up on the show before but there is a paul schrader quote 
And it's one of my, I think that if you want to understand like what I, and I think many other people believe the duty of a screenplay is, I think that this quote summarizes it best. And that is that a screenplay is not in, in and of itself a work of art. A screenplay is an invitation to collaborate on a work of art. So a screenplay is not a finished thing in and of itself. A, a screenplay is a blueprint for a house. And the blueprint could be sure. the best blueprints in the world. But if I don't get the right contractor and the right drywall and the right fixtures and a good electrician and lay a solid foundation with solid rebar, blah, 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 right? It's going to suck. It doesn't matter how great the blueprints are. So if the blueprints set up a wonderful finished product, then you can't sit here and say that the blueprints sucked and that the other people just made it better because of what they are. Like they worked from that blueprint and they, sure. will, they will argue otherwise. They will say without this, we could not have, have done what we did. Right. And so I think that speaks to the success Aaron, of and the Aronofsky's direction and the score and all of that yeah. and Libatique's cinematography that evokes emotion. Um, you know, even down to the weather choices uh, because you're stuck in this apartment the entire movie um, you know, they they were able to bracket this film day by day. And it even has, you know, as you watch the film, it starts off uh, and you go through the week, you know, and counting down on his mm -hmm. last week, yeah. on the last week of this man's life. And every day has different weather. Um, and they would, you know, choose some of these weather choices based on the mood that, that was going to happen that day or some of the confrontation or how it started versus how it ends and stuff like that. So right down to the pouring rain and thunder, you know, in some of the most intense moments. So a little ham fisted, but I think it's subtle enough that it works and it, you know, definitely worked on me. Yeah, same here. So as we wrap up this movie, like we do with all films, we're going to go ahead and give you some couple features here one of them is three adjectives the other is our star rating but first do want to remind you guys please go ahead and like this video subscribe to our channel and then leave comments right here right let us know what you thought about the film let us know what you thought about our response to the film do you agree with some of the critics of this film do you tend to agree with us that was able to overlook them we'd love to hear what you have to think so for three adjectives ryan i will toss to you to kick us off I'm going to go with gut-wrenching because this one really rang it out of me. I don't know what it was about it, but the magic trick worked. Um, <laughs> uh, the next one is empathy because at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's, it's showing you, I think that, you know, the critics are right. It's showing you um, a lot of gross things. And I said, like I said earlier, a lot of that is exacerbated by the sound design and stuff like that. But, um, you know, you have to see through that and, and get into the heart of the matter. And, and uh, it really kind of forces you to be an empathetic uh, person in this regard. And the last one is character study. Uh, because I think uh, if I was going to describe this film to somebody, and that's what these this three adjective feature is all about, uh, is if I could summarize this very shortly to somebody, I think this is a character study. I think that you yeah, don't go anywhere. Um, you know, you're kind of forced to just sit down and, and watch these people all interact with their grief and trauma. And it kind of peels back the layer of that onion. And, um, and it kind of forces you to look inward a little bit at some of your own. So um, I think it works on all those levels personally. How about you, bud? My first adjective is honest because I feel like that's not only a theme of the film, but I think that it's honest in what it shows us. And also to your point, being honest about not glamorizing this dude's life, you know, and showing you a lot of the lesser aspects. We didn't even mention, you know, the film opens with him masturbating. And then after he <laughs> right. orgasms, he immediately has a very close to a heart attack. And yeah. it, it, again, every time that he goes on these binges, it, it's almost, you know, we didn't even mention this, but the, the film is sort of like, 
it treats his plight and his addiction to food like any other addiction, right? But instead of watching the guy go on a liquor binge or a cocaine binge, he goes on a food binge. And somehow it's almost even worse than watching some of those other iterations of addiction. You know, maybe it's just because all of us can relate to that. We didn't mention his trauma because of Christianity. We didn't mention his trauma because of uh, being gay. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and being chastised for being a homosexual, but, you know, mm-hmm. having to deal with the conflict of leaving his family behind uh, as he came to terms with the fact that he's a gay man. Um, these are all things that Sam Hunter built into the script uh, in the stage play because he's gay and was a former Christian and had to deal with a lot of those traumas as well and was also yeah. obese and ate his way uh, into a bad situation because of dealing with the first two traumas I just mentioned and being judged for being gay while being in church and having all those conflicts. And he had to lose 130 pounds. And he said that he wrote this script uh, because he found a way out, but he wanted to um, look at a, a character, do a character study, if you will, about somebody that couldn't find their way out and saw their way to the yeah. bitter end where he would have ended up had he not found help. So uh, I didn't mean yeah. to interject, but when you're talking no, about trauma great. and, um, and, and honesty in those things, I thought that, you know, you're absolutely right. I love those themes and it, it goes even deeper than that. Um, they, they handle a lot in this movie. It's very, very heavy. <laughs> yeah. Which, which leads to my second adjective was, which is emotional, you know, and that doesn't really need any go. further uh, description. Uh, we've been talking for 45 minutes about all the ways it's emotional and then raw, you know, again, sort of tied in with that honesty, you know, uh, they, they, they show you the handle that he has to use to get in bed and they, you know, they give you those mm-hmm. couple minutes of just watching him struggle with being Jeez. overweight. And so again, yeah. you know, in the because of his, yeah, you know, the, through the performance, we maintain that element of compassion, but the film is also not afraid to not shy away and say, hey, look, you know, we're not advocating this or even saying this isn't OK. Like this dude has a problem, you know, with food right. and it has all of these manifestations again, the same way any other addiction, you know, we're going to show the heroin addict losing all the weight and getting scabs. Right. Like we're going to show mm-hmm. the other side of being um, addicted to food and, and everything that goes along with that. So. Honest, emotional, raw, all of this amounting to a star rating from old Jason of four and a half out of five stars. Really, really appreciated this film. Uh, a difficult watch, uh, but at the same time, you know, it was funny. Uh, when I, Immediately after finishing this film, I kind of felt like, you know, wow, that was, that was a bit rough. Uh, really appreciated the film. Very emotional, you know, leaves you in a raw state. Eh, there you go, raw again. But... I didn't think like I necessarily wanted to or needed to watch the film right away again. And I still don't feel that way, but I think that I'm going to go back and rewatch it sooner than I thought. Oh, I'll definitely watch it. It kind of stayed with me. Yeah. 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 This is not so rough to watch that it was rough emotionally, but it wasn't like Requiem where I needed like a shower afterwards and I felt like I had scabies or something. Like I felt dirty after that. This was just laid bare, you know, it made me want to call my parents <laughs> and, and tell them sorry for everything, you know, that I've ever done. So, yeah. um, yeah, How about I'm you? right What's there with you. Rating? I'm giving, I'm giving this one four and a half stars as well. Um, awesome. it's not, you know, you, you got to keep those five stars in the clutch for, for right. those, you know, masterpieces, but dude, for 3 million bucks, you're not going to get a better $3 million that's experience nuts. out of me. That's, that's I can't believe they spent $3 million dollars on that movie. That's, that's yeah. insane. They didn't have to buy a really, locations. really good product for three million dollars. There's only like four, five actors. <laughs> <laughs> so absolutely. So, yeah, great movie. The Whale. 
I do know what's on streaming. Um, so go ahead and check that out as well. Be sure to visit esotericacinema.com for some more of us. If you want that thing, we understand 45 plus minutes is probably plenty. But uh, <laughs> in case you want any more, esotericacinema.com. I'm Jason Peters. He's Ryan Siebold. This has been Esotericacinema. Thanks so much for watching and listening. Enjoy the movies.